Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today, we've got part two of my conversation with A.W. Hammond on his new book, The Paris Collaborator. It is a two-parter, so make sure you go back and check out episode one. You'll get the setup for the mystery and some of the key themes that we're going to be exploring again today. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft. It's out of the studios of 2SER in Sydney, Australia. Now, Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. And 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, A.W. Hammond has trained and worked as a lawyer before penning his Ned Kelly Award-nominated novel, Blood Witness. That training obviously influenced those books. He also wrote another one with the same hero, The Unbroken Line. But today, we're going somewhere different. We're going back in time with his latest novel, The Paris Collaborator. It's Paris, August 1944. Auguste Duchesne is renowned for his ability to find missing people, but he finds himself in an impossible situation. As the Allies close in on Paris, Duchesne must find a missing priest and a German soldier. He's working both sides against the other, and he somehow has to satisfy two ideologies, two very, very conflicting sides who want to hurt his family. Now, in part two... We are going to be getting deeper into the mystery of the Paris Collaborator, and we're also going to be exploring the ways that ideologies clash. And intriguingly, we are possibly going to discover that the denouement of the mystery may have as much to do with how Duchenne survives as what the solution is. Join me as we discover A.W. Hammond's The Paris Collaborator. The signals that were needed to be broadcast from Parisian to Parisian that, you know, I'm, I am, although subtly, but importantly, resisting this occupation. It drew me back to, you know, in, in our age of the internet, seemingly we have a, a platform that should be so much a, um, a space of connectivity, but we see exactly, exactly the same thing happening where we have performances of, performances of the side that we are on that, that absolutely descend into, you know, baseness, this, this idea that, that one person's act of kindness or one person's act of solidarity can then be, be leapt on so vehemently. And it was these parallels that, that just kept drawing me back into what Duchenne was actually trying to achieve in this mission. So he's, he is brought in by the resistance. They, they charge him with finding a priest or realistically they want him to find some guns, but you know, they, he, he is famous for finding people. So he has to find a priest. He is then brought in by the Germans and they want him to find a soldier and he doesn't know what what to do. He has got these twin missions. They are polar opposites and he, he doesn't want any of this. He, he is, he wants to be the man that he is, but he's challenged by the German major who charges him with his mission. How are you not one of us. And it's a question of increasing importance that complicates Duchenne's life immeasurably because as the Americans approach Paris and the Nazis redouble their efforts, it seems that everyone must choose a side and by doing so they place a bet on their future. 
And there was the, you show us this thin line between being an ally or a collaborator. The side you choose makes you an ally or a collaborator, depending on who wins. And only only from our point in history do we know. Would it have been possible to be neutral in such times? Like Duchenne sort of, he, he kind of tries to maintain a, a little bit of neutrality in his mission of finding people. Yeah, I don't, I, look, I, I, from the research that I did, and that was through a very specific lens in, in writing the story, I, it didn't seem to me that neutrality was a, was a possibility. Mm. Um, it was so per- pervasive, the sense of the presence of others uh, you know, and I mean this, in the, you know, in the, literally, but also in the in, in more broadly, the foreign presence mm. of um, of the Germans that that there was this strong expectation that you you would you would take a side. Um, I think particularly too because Paris had, you know, for whatever for the reasons that I mean, many people are familiar had had chosen to, you know, essentially become this. You know, there was Vichy France, so which supporting the Germans essentially there. And there's even historical examples of, of French uh, Nazis who went and became and joined the SS, um, the SS Battalion Charlemagne uh, were their name, and they actually fought in the fall of Berlin. So they, Paris had long since been liberated. The French were now solidly now you know, return, reunited, and there were still you know, French fighting in Berlin um, some years after that. So I think it was very stark. Um, and one of the ideas I think is, you know, and we're talking about Duchenne quite a bit, but I, I tried also so this theme of what is collaboration throughout mm. the book or even, you know, uh, a shopkeeper. What does it mean for them to sell food to, you know, to the, to the Germans? Are they supporting the Germans? Should they be refusing? I mean, they obviously they can't, but at the same time is that that sort of seems to be more permissible in the sense of, well, that, that is their, that's their business and they have no other choice. You know, they can't resist. And, and there's, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there's sort of ways that that plays out in the story. And then also looking at the, you know, Duchenne's daughter who, who falls in love with the German airman. And that whole experience for, for, for women and, and, and the men, I guess, as well, potentially, who found themselves, you know, um, German lovers, which early on might have seemed like, well, this is the way it's going to be, you know, because as you say, nobody had the benefit of, of historical hindsight to say, well, yeah. this is going to only be, you know, four years worth of our experience. But I think the other thing too is um, I've tried to play with that idea of the benefit of historical hindsight because we know the outcome. So the tension is amped up for us knowing that actually some of these decisions and what's going on puts them at threat, you know, particularly Marianne, his daughter. I mean, you know, so, so um, vivid and, um, well known, you know, the images of of women having their hair shorn and carrying, you know, babies, you know, presumably who the fathers were German, you know, through the streets of Paris and being beaten and hounded. So, so you know what's at risk. You know, we have we we know what's at risk for these characters. I really want to get to that idea of of Marianne and and the idea of love. Um, but first, I, I just kind of wanted to, yeah, maybe m- maybe pull back the curtain a little bit because what I found as I read, what I, I found you were doing for me is showing me this historical story without, without it being a historical, a true historical narrative that with the benefit of hindsight, we can understand so deeply and then sneaking these parallels with our current world. And, and it, really, it really does become quite fraught, this idea that, 
um, neutrality is not possible, that at a certain point with polarizing ideologies, we, we do have to consider where we stand, that, uh, that at a point we do say, you know, it's a cliche, but the, um, the standard you, you walk past is the standard you accept. And then I- into all this, comes love. You've, you've talked about Marianne, Duchenne's daughter, Duchenne's daughter, and she has fallen in love with a German airman. And she, she protests that love to her father over any kind of political or national allegiance. She's, she's in love and that's what she wants. And she even challenges that idea against Duchenne and her mother's love and the way that story played out. What I wondered, though, is: Do you believe, in some sense, in the in the transcendent power of love? Do you do you feel like love could overcome in those circumstances? Uh, well, I mean, for, for me, <laughs> I, I would imagine it might be possible. But in, in writing about Marianne and that experience, it was sort of almost more of a thought exercise of saying, "How does somebody?" find themselves, how will they rationalize themselves being in this situation and, in, 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 you know, in, in making a, a lover of the enemy. And then also Duchenne's reactions towards that and the potential hypocrisy that might be seen by people around him. And then also a pure narrative sort of motivator where she's exposed and vulnerable because the resistance can very easily point their finger at her and say she's actively collaborating. She's a you know, she's made a lover of the enemy um, and she's not resisting and therefore puts her life at risk, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm cynical about love, but, um, and I'm sure, like, if you, if you just look at the sort of pure facts, there were plenty of people who, who would have thought this was life as normal, you know, and, and found themselves encountering the Germans and, and, and I don't, I can't believe it was opportunistic, you know. They were told, the French government was telling them this is the way we're moving forwards. We are now, you know, part of, you know, for want of a better word, part of Germany. So it could have been very easy, you know. I mean, I would like to think with the, you know, again, this question of historical hindsight, we all go, well, I was, no, no, I would have, that couldn't have, would never have been me, you know. It's always the benefit of sort of saying, no, 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 you know, I wouldn't have fallen in love with a, a German airman. But, um, you know, they didn't have that benefit, you know. They were in the situation that they were in right then and there. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can't, I can't give you a clear answer on that one. No, I don't know if was, love is transcendent, but it, I think it's a very much the sort of specific set of circumstances. It is wonderful the way you, you explore, though, and it felt in some ways love was was almost like a secret resistance that couldn't, I guess, couldn't always come to the forefront. And I think also of um, the relationship between Duchenne and his neighbour, Camille, and the moments that they are together. But I think there's one where um, she she points out, you know, I'm, I'm not your lover or your wife, but they clearly have this connection and that connection is sustaining. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting you pick up on that. I mean, in case of both, Camille and Marianne too, I, I wanted them not to be victims in the sense that, you know, yes, they are threatened by others, but that um, I wanted them to have their own um, very clear strength. And so making Camille say things like, I'm not your, I'm not your lover is just very clearly sort of giving her the power in that situation. Mm. Um, and sort of trying to build out these characters, these women that were, 
yeah, just not in the novels there to be victims and there to be threatened by, you know, Germans and resistance and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I saw also that I guess in, in Camille we also have, I guess, the, that greatest evocation of that idea of the, the quiet daily resistance of the Parisians presenting themselves as Parisians, maintaining their life as best they can. The fashions may be two or three years out of date because, of course, there is a war going on. But, again, the the, the contrast and juxtaposition of uh, Duchenne and Camille's apartments, which at the very outset you you show us are mirror images of each other in in space but not in presentation. Duchenne's got books toppling everywhere. There's a there's a rogue turtle in there and Camille's is is still beautifully presented. She maintains that civility because that is something that cannot be taken from her. Yes, yeah, spot on. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. A- a- and um, again, you know, the, the Duchenne and the and his sort of clutter it sort of also sort of reflects something of his of his his world and her world you know hers is very much controlling um, maintaining a sense of order to resist and his is uh, so he's almost like he's overwhelmed with everything mostly from the sort of sense of guilt that he feels uh, and, but then also the guilt that he feels towards surviving the guilt that he feels towards not having been a better father to his daughter who's now dating a, you know dating. Um, is, has a German name and lover. So it, 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 it's, yeah, it's sort of meant to also reflect something of their mental turmoil or how they're managing the experience as well. You're spot on with that observation. Now, isn't it terrific when you're talking about a mystery so close to that mystery entering the world? Because, of course, we can't. We can't go too far into into this this conundrum, this problem, these twin problems that Duchenne has to solve. But I want to come back right to the beginning of our interview and address something that uh, I'm sure there would have been a few listeners saying to themselves, well, hang on, so you've got you've got a missing priest helping the resistance and he's got a bunch of guns. And then you've got a German soldier in Paris who's missing. He's like, Alex, Andrew, I've, I've solved this for you. The Germans got the priest and the resistance got the, the soldier. And then Beautifully, you anticipate that. You you point out, no, no, no. The circumstances around these cases, this is not how the resistance operate. This is not how the Germans operate. There is a subtlety going on here. Um, was it difficult crafting, again, those subtle machinations of a mystery in a war-torn city where there are so many limitations on movement? Is that is that is that a limit or is that freeing that you have these limitations that you have to work within? Uh, yeah, just it's freeing, absolutely. Um, the challenge in writing, so the previous two books were set contemporaneously, and, the, and, and one of the first things that's most liberating is not having a mobile phone in everybody's hand. <laughs> because a lot of the time when you're trying to write, right, is is why don't they just pick up their phone? And there's nothing worse. And then there's that whole, I think there's a clip on YouTube of nine minutes long of people saying, I don't have reception, I'm out of reception, I don't can't call this person, you know, as a narrative in movies to avoid the fact that, Right here and now, I can call that person and say, hang on, wait a second, don't go there, it's dangerous. So it's incredibly liberating because you don't have mobile phones. And then also because it's a war zone, I mean, the electricity is going out, the power is going out, the phone lines are coming down. It it, 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 it narrows the sort of most like the, the way that you have to solve the own conundrums you set yourself as a writer of, of, of mysteries, detective stories, thrillers, by sort of saying you only have a set number of tools available to you in that in that toolbox belt so how you use them becomes 
how you've becomes yeah about that the crafting of it, but also how you lo- use them means you don't have too many options at your disposal. So you have to just think about how to match these connections, build them together. So yeah, it was actually yeah it was that part of it was very enjoyable, feeling a sort of sense of um, I guess uh, imposter syndrome about writing a you know about a culture and city that I'm not an expert on that, that, that was the hard part, you know, um, finding out how to pick those things and put them together. I think, um, one that I love the most is, uh, Chrissy Neen's wintering, which she sets in the, the sort of the far South of Tasmania. So from a very early point, she establishes that you're not getting reception and you're also not getting reception in some of the, the darkest, scariest spaces. So, um, dealing dealing with technology in that way can can have enormous kind of gothic effect, but I, I I love I love the way technology has complicated so much of the way mystery uh, can happen and and the ways that mystery can can endure. Um, oh, there's so much more to say that we can't say. We, I mean, we could do this interview again in a year or eighteen months' time when more people have read it, and we can discuss more of the mystery. But maybe a final, maybe a final question, just to to think a little bit about Duchenne, because I, I came to be so affectionate, you know, so fond of him. In your mind, as you were writing, did you feel the resolution hinged more on Duchenne's success? or that others would perceive his success? You set up the idea in the title, The Paris Collaborator. Is it more important that Duchenne is successful or that he is not denounced as a collaborator? Regardless of what actually happens, we're not giving anything away here. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, that's a really interesting question. I think for him, by the end of the book, it becomes about the survival of those who he cares about. And it's almost as if his survival is less important. So he sort of made a decision in his mind there. Um, but it does hinge sort of at the end in some ways too about, you know, again, without giving too much away, once some of the questions and challenges and threats have been resolved, how does he, he has to then come back to return into that world of like, I, I might actually get through this and then how do I get through this without being labeled a collaborator? Mm-hmm. I think that's quite important for him. Um, but I also think that that question remains sort of hanging too, because it's just sort of sort of uncertain about how things are going to progress for him in some ways after we land on the last page. Um, but for me too, I think um, you know that if we look at also the so there's like the collaborative part, but then also sol- solving the mystery. That for me is always an important part. Not, not well, not, it's not just important for him because he's very invested by it at the end, but also for the reader. Um, we always sort of maintained that the, the the joy of crime and mystery is the can get as dark as you want, and people sort of seem to respond to that in almost like a cathartic sense. But what I think you need to do, and even if the endings are sort of grey endings where it's not clean cut, it's not black and white, it's still to get that sense of answering the mystery, so that people feel a sense of resolution, even if they don't like the resolution. All the questions you've asked throughout the novel have been answered-ish, you know, not to leave with an unresolved thought. So in some ways he's mirroring, and and I was thinking about the reader when I'm thinking about his desire, but I had to make it believable for that character, so his desire to want to solve the mystery. So it's it's sort of a balance, but I think you're right. I mean, there's sort of, by the time we finally reach the end, he doesn't want to be, 
he's got to be careful about this collaborator label. Mm. I feel like we've laid enough breadcrumbs now, Alex. I think <laughs> I think we have given any genre head, any lover of literature, a reason to go and pick up the Paris Collaborator. I began the conversation by saying I expected this beautiful uh, journey in my mind, travel when I can't travel, and I ended up uh, moving through so many of the important ideas that vex us today. And I did all that reading the Paris Collaborator from A.W. Hammond. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the show, for, for taking us through the, your, your latest book. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. I had a great time. I, I, I enjoy the deep dives that you do on the podcast. It's, um, it's, a, it's a rare and, 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 and enjoyable experience. That's it for this great conversation with A.W. Hammond. Alex's new novel is The Paris Collaborator. It is out now from Echo Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. This show, it's been presented and produced by Andrew Popel. If you stay in touch, yo, if you want to stay in touch with us, you'll find us on the socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser And if you subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, there is a new Great Conversation every week, often two-parters, and there's always a bonus in the middle of the week, the special 2SER book club. I am Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till, till then, happy reading. Bye now.